I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's evolving nuclear capabilities and strategy. There are nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons today. These include the original five nuclear weapon states that are members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the United States, Russia, the UK, France, and China. The additional four countries with nuclear weapons are India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. China is generally believed to have the third or fourth largest nuclear arsenal behind the United States, Russia, and possibly also France. China is not transparent about its nuclear arsenal, but it has made important public statements about its nuclear doctrine. There's a great deal of attention paid to developments in China's conventional military capabilities, but less focus on its nuclear capabilities and how they're being modernized. So we thought it would be interesting to dig into this subject. Joining us today to discuss China's nuclear capabilities, its doctrine and strategy, is Dr. Hans Christensen. Dr. Christensen is director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. He is co-author of the Nuclear Notebook column in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, as well as the World Nuclear Forces Overview in the CEPRI Yearbook. Dr. Christensen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So how does China's nuclear arsenal compare with that of the other major nuclear weapons states? And, and what are the main factors that China uses in determining the size and the nature of its nuclear forces? China is among the, um, the, the seven smaller nuclear weapon states, um, uh, so just around the size of the French uh, arsenal in terms of warheads in its stockpile. Um, it has traditionally kept its arsenal, you know, low and 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 low key, so to speak, uh, compared to, for example, the United States and Russia. Um, and the way what has shaped its force uh, over the years has predominantly been two things. One is to be able to secure retaliatory capability. That you know, how are you going to do that? So no one can take you out. You'll be able to have a deterrent capability. So they've generally had a mix of forces uh, with. Um, you know, a, f a couple of tens of uh, ICBMs that could reach uh, the United States and deep into Russia. Most of the force has been uh, focused on on regions, on regional scenarios, so border areas, northern India, um, you know, U.S. bases in Japan, South Korea, early on the Philippines, uh, these types of things. So it it is both about a retaliatory capability, but it's also about having options in the region if things go nuclear. Recently, the Defense Intelligence Agency claimed, and I'll quote this, that over the next decade, China is likely to at least double the size of its nuclear stockpile. I, you know, do you agree with this assessment? And, and what are the drivers that sure. would lead China to at least double yeah. and maybe even catch up with uh, the inventory that the United States and Russia have? Well, so that statement uh, comes with a couple of remarks, obviously, because first of all, DIA uh, as an in, as an agency, it's a military intelligence agency, so it's not like the U.S. Uh, intelligence community that makes this assessment. That's an important distinction to make. Um, historically, uh, DIA has been very sort of um, uh, worst case prone. Um, and I've looked at some of its projections from the past about uh, Chinese nuclear forces, and they turned out both from the 80s, 2000s, and now this latest one, perhaps, that turned out to be very uh, exaggerated, um, never 
really panned out that way. Um, that's not to say that China is not doing a lot of things and, and having a lot of efforts, but we'll see if if it if it's that dramatic. What can influence, however, uh, how much of that projection will come true, is. Uh, predominantly how how China will react to improvements, I think, in U.S. ballistic missile defense capabilities. And the reason for that is that it has already had an effect of China starting to deploy multiple warheads on one of its uh, uh, ICBMs. And it's introducing, it's working on finishing a new one that is going to come in over the next, whatever, five years that also has MIRV capability. So, that to me, we hear we hear estimates or claims and sort of in the dramatic news media uh, about you know ten MIRVs and all these types of uh, bombastic things that we remember from Soviet arsenals and things like that. But it's very important to think about the Chinese requirements. Theirs is not one of needing to uh, maximize warheads per uh, per missile. Theirs, pri- their primary mi- uh, mission is to ensure that the warheads that are on there can penetrate missile defenses. So they have a retaliatory capability in, in whatever scenario they, they're, they're envisioning. So my estimates of, of MIRV capability on their system is much more limited. Normally, you know, a few warheads perhaps. Again, their point is to penetrate, not to maximize warhead loading. But if they decide to put MIRV on many more systems, and if they also decide that their ballistic missile submarine uh, force in the future has to have MIRV, then of course you can see a dramatic increase. Now, there's no way physically it can be a um, you know a sprint to you know to parity. Uh, th- there's no way that the Chinese force is is likely to go in that direction. But we do predict that um, if it hasn't already done so, then certainly in the near future, it will uh, bypass France uh, as the world's third largest nuclear weapon state. Um, how far they will go up? We'll see. Right now, we estimate they have in the close, just close to 300 uh, weapons in their stockpile. The intelligence community has said that in different ways over the years. Um, they've normally said two to 300 a low number of hundreds. Uh, it, it comes out in, in various ways. Um, but we've also seen some reaction when there have been uh, claims that China had many hundreds more, even several thousand nuclear weapons, where you know even people like the former commander of, of Stratcom, uh, General Keeler, uh, went public and just basically said, no, that is not the case. We think they're in the low few hundreds. So let's talk a little bit about uh, China's nuclear doctrine. From my perspective, there's at least three components. Um, one is its longstanding no first use uh, policy. Um, second is what, it, in using China's own language, is building a lean and effective nuclear arsenal, which I prefer to a minimum uh, capability, and uh, having a reliable second strike uh, capability. So let's talk first a little bit about no first use. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been decades past debates in China about whether or not they should modify or attach conditions to their no first use policy. Yeah. Uh, there have been concerns expressed that if the United States used conventional weapons to attack China's deterrent, that that would justify using nuclear weapons first because that attack would essentially constitute first use. So I wonder how, what's your assessment hmm. of the no first use? policy? Is this something we should take very seriously in some parts of the military, 
it's just completely dismissed. Right. So I'm a little uneasy or unhappy about a discussion about no first, no first use because I don't really think the importance of the no first use policy is about what will happen if there is a war. I think a country will use whatever means are necessary for its survival, defense, whatever. And no one's going to say, oh, gee, we can't do this because we have a no first use policy if it comes to it. Um, I, I think the importance of a no first use policy is more the effect it has on the structuring of uh, nuclear forces in peacetime because it has a dampening effect on how much you need and for what purpose. If you have a first use policy, then you need forces that can execute that mission and that could mean uh, launching really fast, obviously. Um, it could also uh, mean that you mean, need more different types of options depending on what the scenario is. So you could you could have a, a proliferation of capabilities basically if you have if you don't have a no first use policy. And so we see that in other countries that that don't have uh, no first use policies, their forces tend to be broader, more capable, more of them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a primary benefit of the Chinese no first use policy has been this sort of you know, dampening effect or calming effect, if you will, on its posture ambitions. Um, but it's true what you say that, of course, there's a there's an ongoing debate and an old one about what does it really mean and how would you do it. And true, uh, you know, one of the, I've had many conversations with Chinese officials asking them the explicit question, you know, what if we attacked your forces with conventional, would you not use nuclear? If, if, if someone invaded China, overran the country, would you at no punt point ever use nuclear uh, as long as they didn't? And so, again, I think it's not a policy that we should focus too much on in terms of what ha would happen in a wartime situation. I think it's the importance is more the, the benefit it has uh, in peacetime to me. China's uh, land-based ICBMs now are, uh, most of them, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, road mobile, solid fuel. Uh, does this provide a, re a reliable retaliatory capability? Uh, does okay. China see it as reliable? Yeah. Why does China need to have a submarine-based right, nuclear exactly. capability? Yeah, the submarine force is a, is an oddball in the Chinese uh, posture to some extent, uh, certainly in its current uh, structure. Um, I would say that it's, it's a work in progress. Uh, we're still many years from China being able to operate, I think, um, a ballistic missile submarine force in a truly secure retaliatory capability. Um, uh, it's a work in progress. They're developing the command and control systems to be able to do that, the operational experiences. They also have to deal with how are they going to allocate nuclear warheads to the military forces under normal circumstances. Because if you need a submarine out there with ballistic missiles with warheads on to be a secure retaliatory capability, you need to have nuclear warheads on them under normal circumstance. We do that. The Russians do it. The Brits, the French. Uh, but the Chinese haven't quite, it is thought, moved uh, in that direction yet. So we will see how that force uh, develops. Right now, they're in their second step, sort of in their effort to do that. They had a single ballistic missile submarine for many years, was never very successful. I assume they used it to develop technology and operational experience with reactors and all these types of things. Now they built the force, uh, well, four uh, that are currently in operation. Two more are fitting out. Um, so those six will become sort of the backbone. And early next decade here, we'll apparently see the first of a follow-on class that will come out. It'll have uh, a longer range ballistic missile than the current one. And 
one of the things they are trying to address, of course, is for it to be a real retaliatory capability, it has to have the capability to target all of the continental United States from territorial waters uh, in China, uh, or at least waters where, where it's safe to operate the ballistic missile submarine. Right now, they cannot do that, not with the range of this on the submarine. So before we get into that, without this sea-based capability, does China have a yeah. reliable strike capability just based on its land-based systems? It is, it is thought that it does. And if you look at the priority and the efforts they have put into developing mobile ICBMs, they seem to believe that they have a capability there, um, but also that it needs to be more responsive. You know, they used to have ICBMs that were basically 20 uh, silos uh, with liquid-fueled uh, missiles that took a, that would take a long time to prepare to launch. But also silos are vulnerable, of course, if you know where they are. Um, and then they had a, a shorter-range ICBM that was all sort of a liquid-fuel uh, system that could roll out from caves from underground and up to launch and then back in and load a new missile and out again or something like that. Um, it was a it was a you know sufficient force for the times, but now they've concluded that it's not that those forces are too vulnerable, and so they're building. They're already well underway, having several types variations of mobile ICBMs that are uh, you know that have off road capability, and uh, and the next generation we, we will see come in has sort of um, you know will be their first full capacity. Uh, road mobile ICBM that'll come on, uh, you know, in an early early next decade or something. Uh, that's the DF forty one. So we'll, we'll see what they do with. It. So, but the big question, of course, is China is a huge landmass. It has tunnels everywhere. You look at satellite photos. Any facility is buried or has some underground facility. China truly believes that uh, it it. It, it enhances its retaliatory capability to hide these systems underground, roll them out when they need to launch. Um, and also, uh, they're very good at decoys. They're very good at uh, roaming things around that look like uh, ICBM launchers but are not. So they have all that game going on. Uh, to me, it's somewhat of an oddball here with the subs because – the subs they have are very noisy, relatively speaking, compared to what U.S. and Russian uh, uh, ballistic missile submarines can do. So for me, it's 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 odd to see China, if its focus is on securing retaliatory capability, suddenly take a big chunk of those warheads and put them on submarines and send them out to our attack submarines where they can get them. <laughs> that is um, a strange posture, but that's why I think it's a it's a work in progress. On June 3rd, China's Navy successfully tested its next-generation submarine-launched ballistic missile, the JL-3, at least according to reports. Uh, the JL-3, um, some people say, has a range of 8,500 miles and that it can carry up to 10 warheads. We talked a little bit about MIRVs. Maybe it won't have that many. Uh the JL-2 reportedly cannot range the continental United States. So that submarine based in, in Hainan has to um, uh, go into the right. Pacific uh, and face the challenge of yeah. ASW, um, anti-submarine warfare capabilities right. of Japan in particular. Um, and so the JL-3, I understand, is China's answer to that problem. Is that 
correct if China now develops this missile? Will it have sufficient range that it simply will be able to hit the continental United States from Hainan and then China will have a a survivable sea-based capability? Yeah. Well, we don't know yet, of course. Um, uh, The estimates that I have seen from the intelligence community is more in the range of you know, 5,500 to 6,000 miles. Hmm. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but the initial reports about these weapon systems are always very dramatic. You know, when, when they first come in, it's like, whoa, here, full range, it can do everything. <laughs> you know, uh, 10 warheads, because that's what the largest uh, Soviet uh, missiles had. And so w- there is this sort of dramatic kind of almost um, race car statistic, in, you know, that, that pops up every time people start talking about this. Uh, in reality, it, what we're looking at also, I mean, you can go in and see uh, several, right now, you can go see several well-known uh, international publications that claim that there are, there's MIRV, uh, multiple warheads on current uh, Chinese submarine uh, missiles. Uh, even some of their um, shorter range system also have MIRV, according to these sources. Doesn't make any sense at all, but it's just to say that, you know, in the internet days, these types of, of facts, so to speak, they spread like wildfire. And once they're out there, people begin to build on what's out there, and suddenly you don't know where the information came from. So we tend, in our estimates, to be a little more conservative and, and sort of try to say, let's think first about, A, how they, you know, move uh toward a longer range that takes some time. They have to have operational experience. MIRV is not for the purpose of maximizing warheads, but it's for the purpose of penetrating missile defenses. So that's just because we, we, we tend to take a little more conservative approach to that. So the Department of Defense's um, annual report on military security developments in uh, in China uh, that was released a few months ago uh, claimed that China will soon be able to deploy and integrate aircraft uh, with nuclear uh, ballistic um, missiles. This would uh, complete China's nuclear triad of delivery systems Mm -hmm. across land, sea, and air uh, for the first time. So does China need a nuclear triad, and why does it want one? <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, if you have, so this is one of the issues that is becoming more interesting. If China has a minimum deterrent, what what is the what is the ceiling for a minimum deterrent? Uh, when, when do you start to bump up against the constraints that you would imagine comes from a minimum, minimum deterrent? And um, one of them, of course, has been about numbers. Another one has been about, you know, strategy. Um, and and but then there's the question: Does a country need a a, a a triad? I mean, both Britain and France have moved away from triads. Um, they don't seem to want to go back. Um, China is a country that came from a very kind of low-tier nuclear force, suddenly has a lot of money. Uh, this, the, the services uh, are competing for funds. They're competing for projects. Uh, there's prestige in being involved in the nuclear force. We, we know that from our own experience, how our different military branches, you know, they competed for their slice of the nuclear pie. So I, there's probably an element of that also uh, going on in the Chinese, uh, both the ballistic missile submarine force, but also now the bomber force. Having said that, though, I think what's interesting for the Chinese is also about the role that a bomber force with nuclear capability could play. Um, 
it's it's an it would be an important role, obviously, for regional scenarios, different ways of employing nuclear weapons uh, in its periphery. Um, I I think we're many years away from them envisioning using their uh, a nuclear bomber force as sort of a, an as an intercontinental strike force against the continental United States. This is more about regional options. But all of those regional options obviously also ask, you know, they beg the question, how many do you need to have a, a minimum deterrent? Um, they're developing uh, a air-launched ballistic missile for that bomber force, um, a version of a ground-launched ballistic missile uh, that possibly, according to the U.S. intelligence community, has a nuclear warhead option. Hmm. Um, but we also know from China's history that Chinese bombers, they were involved in dropping uh, at least 12 of the weapons that were uh, tested during the 1960s and 70s. So the bomber force has had a very active role in developing China's nuclear capabilities, but has been somewhat mothballed in the sort of 80s and 90s. But now it's being uh, – uh, the nuclear mission is be sort of being reinstigated in the, uh, in, the, in the bomber force. So we'll see where it goes. Um, many rumors as usual. Um, Cruise missiles uh, rumored, um, but nothing substantial. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, a possible role for China in nuclear arms uh, reduction talks. And of course, we know that uh, the United States has announced that it is going to withdraw from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces uh, Treaty. Both the U.S. and Russia have, an ex have expressed an interest in talking with China about a follow-on to the treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, this treaty, of course, banned missiles with ranges between 500 and uh, 5,500 kilometers, and that's both conventional and nuclear. And the Chinese have uh, already rejected outright uh, the possibility of uh, participating and say that they oppose participating in uh, in these uh, talks uh, in, in past years, they used to have conditions under which they might enter into nuclear arms reductions talks with the former Soviet right. Union and the United States, but this hasn't been talked about for a long time. So I, I, I wonder if you think, has the time come for the United States to really try and mm -hmm. get China involved in nuclear reductions uh, talks, or uh, does it really not matter? Mm. And, and how do you understand China's own considerations in this? Yeah. Why are they so opposed? Well, I mean, the Chinese position for many, many decades, of course, has been, you know, you reduce your forces to our level, then we'll talk. Um, and that still seems to be their policy. But, uh, but, but right now, they don't seem to be interested. Uh, that's not to say that they're not interested in having conversations about what it means. And so one has to be, you know, a little careful that you're not only focusing on formal treaty negotiation, but you also have conversations about how forces develop, why they're there, and all that stuff. Um, but the the question, of course, is that the nuclear force um, is is one element of China's military uh, profile and the impact it has on the world it lives in, uh, and, and but so is its conventional forces. And so, out in the region, there's a lot of focus, of course, ab about China's conventional force modernization, its territorial claims, what kind of what kind of forces would it use to back up uh, its claims uh, if it push it comes to shove? And so um, there is that element of how it fits in to 
what military, large military powers are doing out there and how they interact with each other. If you take the INF Treaty, China had INF range weapons before the INF Treaty was, was signed, and it had and developed INF weapons during the time that the INF Treaty existed. That is not a surprise. So although the numbers have gone up somewhat, it's not an entirely new situation. And the way the United States military responded to that over the years was to say, we don't need ground-launched ICBM out in the Pacific. Um, you know, there are relatively few places you can put it, and they're you know relatively vulnerable. Instead, they focused on uh, sea-based and air-launched uh, capabilities to hold those type of launchers at risk. And so they still do that. And it's only a few years ago you could hear senior military commanders in Congress say. You know, we don't need INF uh, systems in the Pacific. There are no missions that we cannot accomplish with the, the forces we currently have. Um, now things have changed. The language has changed. The objectives, we're an official uh, great power competition again that has been coined in the nuclear posture review. Uh, we have an administration that is much more gung-ho in its language uh, and, and also seem to be more favorable to um, you know ideas about introducing new weapon systems, pulling out of INF, of course, very much was uh, done with a reference to China, uh, that it's not just about Russia, it's also about China, how, what they're doing in the region. But even though they have a lot uh, or a considerable amount of, of INF range forces, we also have to keep in mind, we're, we're talking launchers here that can fire these systems. And you can count those launchers up and see how many cruise missiles it'll take to hold them at risk. And so I don't – it's not about holding things at risk. That's the issue. I think the new dynamic that's happening is, is there a need to be able to hit things faster? Ballistic missiles launched from land would be significantly faster on target than sea-launched and air-launched cruise missiles. And so – I suspect there is that dynamic, that there is an interest in that from people who advocate for ground-launched INF systems out in the Pacific. What is the significance of the creation of the PLA rocket force as part of the reorganization that was announced by Xi Jinping in 2015 mm -hmm. and is still, of course, ongoing? Yes. Well, um, the most significant, I think, was that... Um, it, it elevated uh, the strategic rocket forces to sort of uh, full, you know, full service status, so to speak. It had had sort of a an odd less than the navy, less than the air force status for many many years, and now it's a full fledged uh, service that also comes along with sort of beefed up language about how they have to be more effective. We need more types of these systems so we are more you know flexible both in the way we can respond but also what we can hold at risk accuracy regions whatever so they're talking about you know being able to um, conduct counterattack uh, strikes um, in addition just to retaliatory language if you will uh, counterattack can mean a lot of different things um, and again if it comes in context with the no first use debate um, you know, counterattack can be applied to a lot of different things. Right? China, for example, has a policy of not targeting non-nuclear countries with nuclear weapons. Well, so why do you have regional ballistic missiles? There, you know, yes, there's Russia and there's India, but you know, South Korea doesn't have 
nuclear weapons. Uh, Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons. But there are U.S. bases out in the region. And so they want to hold at risk U.S. bases with their ballistic missile force. That also gives rise to a new thing, which is very important uh, in the way the strategic rocket force is going to operate. And that is the increased um, capacity of conventional ballistic missiles. This is a unique feature of the Chinese uh, arsenal, the way they mix nuclear and conventional. This has huge implications for crisis stability, potential for misunderstanding, what is being readied, what are, how we're signaling, all these things. So, so that is a real issue. So if I were to advise on where would the most important part of a conversation with the Chinese have to be, it would be less about the number of nuclear weapons. It would be more about how they're operated. This mixture between conventional and nuclear is a really uh, dangerous thing in my view. But that's how they see it. They want to use these conventional systems. So they have options below the nuclear threshold. Doesn't affect their no first use policy. But they would be able to attack U.S. bases in the region, uh, deplete U.S. capabilities to threaten them or whatever. So one of the interesting new systems we are seeing now coming in is the DF-26, which is an uh, intermediate range system, mobile, solid fuel, but it's dual capable. So... This thing can reach Guam, and it has greater accuracy. So not only greater accuracy for conventional, but apparently also greater accuracy for nuclear. So again, when a country modernizes and forces become more capable, it opens up new potential options that military advisors can offer to the leadership. That's not to say that the leadership will there, you know, accept them or say, yeah, we have to go in that direction or change our policy fundamental. But it's inevitable that a significant modernization will have impact on what military and advisors and strategists will be advising to the Chinese leadership in terms of what their policies should be in the future. So finally, let me ask what you think are the main variables that will affect China's uh, thinking and sizing of its nuclear force, its strategy, and its doctrine going forward. Yeah. They're already um, very much reacting to the missile defense capabilities. Um, you know, the current MIRV system is sort of almost explicitly developed and deployed for that particular uh, mission. Um, so we're seeing that going on the mobile force as well. Uh, we'll see if we see it going on the ballistic missile submarine force. So, so um, missile defenses certainly will have a, a significant effect. But so does, you know, advanced conventional strike, of course, because it's it's – it's really something that, that they freaked out about after the Gulf Wars. They basically realized they were toast. And if the United States unleashed its conventional forces, they wouldn't get anything off the ground. And so, so they're, they're really focusing on trying to make their force less vulnerable, not just to nuclear surprise attack, but to conventional uh, surprise attack. And those, those capabilities are evolving tremendously. I mean, you know, in the U.S., Military planning, for example, um, we're now beginning to move in directions with the Russians, of course, about hypersonics. The Chinese are doing that too. Um, but also sensors that are developing dramatically, for example, persistent uh, infrared, where you may not be 
looking at, so to speak, with, with, with optics, looking at a missile launcher roaming around somewhere, but you can track it with, in, with, in, with persistent uh, infrared. Uh, they will, that will raise new problems for mobile forces, how they're supposed mm-hmm. to operate and how they're supposed to camouflage themselves. Um, and then comes cyber, of course, cyber effects. Can you, can you go in through cyber and disable systems or spoof them? You know, maybe they don't work the way they're supposed to do. Uh, maybe they will understand. Maybe they think something else is going on than actually going on, uh, et cetera. And then, of course, drones, uh, decoys. That is an, a huge development also as well. Uh, the Air Force has a very significant push underway. You know, drones that will fly in, in front of aircraft, in front of uh, the actual attack, and mimic and, and pretend to be something that they're not. Uh, and set off uh, the Chinese defenses, and 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 therefore be able to punch a hole in, and 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 take them out. For you know, so there's there's all those layers going on at the same time. So I think you know, for a Chinese planner, they'll say the pressure is on. We need you know we need to flexibility. We need more systems. We need to have better ways of hiding. We also need to shorten their reaction time because we may not have that time. Um, so there are many, many factors that are driving this uh, right now. So it, it'll be an interesting next 10 years. Sounds like it's going to be an intense competition um, in many realms, uh, diplomatic and military and possibly nuclear. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Hans Christensen, who's director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. 